Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One note on this conversation. I sat down with Bill a week ago when it looked like the Golden State Warriors were en route to a second straight NBA championship. That was before LeBron James and his uh, mates changed the script. Uh, So you'll hear a lot of um, extolling of the virtues of the Warriors. Uh, If we had taped it this week, I'm sure we'd be giving LeBron and the the Cavaliers their due. So with that, strap on your seatbelts. Here's Bill Walton. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you're not a sports fan, you may be inclined not to listen to this podcast, but you should. Because Bill Walton is much more than one of the greatest athletes of all time. He's someone who's overcome great personal, physical uh, obstacles uh, to reach that greatness. He's someone who's struggled with pain so severe that, uh, as he explains in his wonderful book, Back from the Dead, uh, he pondered suicide. And yet he's one of the most ebullient and positive people uh, that you'll ever hear. A conversation with Bill Walton is in turns hilarious, moving, uh, and, and really, really interesting. So I hope you'll give this podcast a listen. Bill Walton, it's it's election day in uh, California, primary day in California. Have you been out to vote? I'm getting ready to vote, but I'm doing this interview first so that I can find the inspiration, so that I can see the light, so that I can step forward, be a proud <laughs> American, and finally try to make it to the seven-foot barrier. I've always been 6'11", or at least since I was 15 <laughs> years old. And now, because of we get this opportunity... I am a true believer on the spirit road, and it is such an honor and privilege for me not only to get to go vote today and exercise the greatest right, the greatest power that we have, but to be on this show with my hero, David Axelrod, Holy who is the combination of so many of the people pressure, in man. my life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can You're interrupting me already, man. I thought I was your guest, please. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the combination of so many of the heroes in my life that have already passed. John Wooden, Chick Hearn, Jerry Garcia, David Halberstam, Maurice Lucas. Larry Bird's still alive, and Larry Bird's still rolling. But you bring it all together. You are I'm... able to create the message. You're able to deliver the message. You're able to shine the light. You're able to put it down in the English language like no other. And then you have this incredible ability to clear the space underneath the boards. And when you have all those things together, I, I had those things in my life, David, when I was growing up. Because I had the fantastic parents. And uh, we had a world, a culture, uh, an environment in our home of music, of books, of radio 
and conversation. Conversation that I could not participate in because I'm a lifelong stutterer. Right. And here I am now on this show with you, the master wordsmith, <laughs> and this ability of all these different people in my life to step forward when times were tough and we were up against things, and people would say, I'll take care of this. And that culture then was able to create little Billy. Little mm-hmm. Billy with his well, red I, hair well, and his freckles and his big nose and his goofy, nerdy-looking face and his horrendous speech impediment. But I had a chance, a chance to do something in my life because of the sacrifices of other people. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Let me ask you about that, about growing up in, uh, in San Diego. That was, you, San Diego in the 60s was not a bastion of uh, progressivism. Uh, yes, it was. You just had to find it. At the Walton Good home? things are everywhere. And, and, and that is our challenge. You know, we are constantly standing at the fork in the road every single moment. And our choices are, what are we going to do? And my parents, the most unathletic people you've ever seen. I, I never shot a basket with my dad. I saw him run one time at the church picnic. My mom was our town's librarian. My dad was a social worker by day, an adult educator by night, and a music teacher on the weekend. The greatest parents ever, but no interest in sports. But my you brother and, your, and but I. But you, you and your, bro- your brother both became professional athletes. Yes, man. My older brother, Bruce. who's a year older and preceded me at UCLA, where he was an All-America football player, academic All-America, went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys. My brother and I were the only brother combination in the history of the world to have played in the Super Bowl and have won an NBA championship. And so when Bruce and I presented our Super Bowl and NBA championship rings to our parents, they kind of looked at these big gaudy things, and they said, (laughs) what is this? And they just sort of tossed it aside. I don't think we've ever seen them again. But, but, But my parents... They were so full of hope, and they were just, uh, when I, I just finished reading your book for the third time, and it's, it's one of the few books that I've read multiple times, and every time, it's very much like being on tour with the Grateful Dead, or Bob Dylan, or Neil Young, or John Fogarty, or all of my heroes, because while the printed words, while the spoken word, while the sung words remain the same, it's how you absorb them. And that was Little Billy, because the absorption rate for me, the consumption constantly changed as the world was changing around me. And my parents, they're believers. Now, my dad passed 13 years ago. My mom's still 89. She lives in the same house that we all grew up in. They moved there when I was born 63 years ago. And just an absolute fantastic family and home and and, an opportunity, but it was an opportunity that was driven by, yes, we are believers. We can do something about that. That was my parents. That was my first coach. That was all my heroes and my teachers, whether it was Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali in the world of sports, whether it was Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Sergeant Shriver in the world of social issues and politics and public policy, whether it was the musicians. I grew up in a classical music household. My dad loved classical music, but I gravitated very quickly to rock and roll with the Stones and the Beatles and Dylan and the Dead and Carlos Santana and Crosby, Stills and Nash and all John Fogarty and John Lennon and Jimmy Cliff with the reggae. And it's just fantastic. <laughs> and, and the music just drives me. And that's one of the reasons why I love 
being on the road and getting to Chicago where you've made your hometown and that situation where there's just so much music and yeah, that, and that experience that we had a year ago with the Grateful Dead, the Fare Thee Well tour coming into Soldier Field and they're on the Field Museum. They had the because the Dead Heads, we took over the entire city and I, it was just I, I remember. Yeah. And, the, and, and on the Field Museum there, right on the north end of Soldier Field, where they, they, they had the big giant banner that you can't even describe how huge it is because these buildings are just so massive and monstrous. And, and on, on this banner here, you know, they have, you know, they have the skeletons out there and they have the history of the world inside. But on this banner it said, everything is dead. And while we... While we always have doubts in our life, while there's always hesitation, while there's always indecision, you know, when we just see what's happened this past uh, weekend with the passing of the champ, Muhammad Ali, when we see what Bill Russell has been able to do with his life, and all these guys, like you, like Barack Obama, like Joe Biden, like Jerry Brown, like John Kerry, all these guys who come with the fight, guys like Paul Krugman, guys like Timothy Egan, <laughs> guys like Robert Reich, hold, hold guys on, like hold, David hold Axelrod. On. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let me, let me because I want to uh, ask you some stuff. Uh, I thought you were interviewing me. No, uh, well, I'm, no. And every we're, time we're, I start we're, talking, we're, you start interrupting. Ha- What's going we're, on? We're, here, having, we're having a conversation. Because uh, so I want to learn something. I want to learn a few things here about you. Uh, one is, uh, you talked about uh, being a stutterer when you were growing up, uh, how, uh, how difficult was that? And how'd you, how did you overcome, how did you cope with it? Because it wasn't until later in your life that you, uh, that you overcame that, uh, in, in terms of public speaking. Let me, let me start with this. The one thing that you will learn from me is what not to do. And in my life, Athletics, academics, piece of cake, no problem, chasing the dream, building my life, climbing on the mountain, getting to the top. My problems in life have been orthopedic health. I've had 37 orthopedic operations. I was born with structural congenital defects in my feet. I ground them into dust, chasing my dream of trying to be a basketball player. When I was 14, I tore up my knee for the first time playing against some thugs. They were 30 years old. I was torturing them. They didn't like it, so they took me down. I had to have my first of those 37 orthopedic operations. When I was 21, playing for UCLA, I broke my spine. But here I was, cursed with this horrendous speech impediment. I could not say hello. I could not say thank you. I could not say a single word without just the the stammer, the stutter, the hesitation, and I just could not express myself. I expressed myself through sports. I expressed myself through reading. I expressed myself through just being a part of a bigger world that I only dreamed I could ever be a part of. Kids, kids, kids can be cruel. Were, were you teased not, about your stutter? Not just children, but everybody. And when... Learning how to speak is my greatest accomplishment yeah. in life, without question. And, and, and everybody else's worst nightmare. I was taught how to. I was taught how to speak by Marty Glickman, uh, just an incredible legend. Yes. And you know, let me let me, ta- let me just tell you. I read that in your book when I was a kid. I was 
growing up in New York, my dad and I used to drive out to Coney Island and uh, get hot dogs and sit in the car and listen to Marty Glickman call the New York Giants games. Uh, right. So uh, w- Marty Glickman was a big part of my life, too, but not as big as yours. And please, please go and read Marty's book, Fastest Kid in the Block. Please go and see Video on Demand, HBO's incredible documentary about Marty Glickman called Glickman. Wasn't he, the guy, Marty, wasn't he the guy who was supposed to run in the, was yeah, he in he the was 100 meter to, instead of Jesse Owens? Correct. Marty's dreams were shattered because of anti-Semitism and racism and ignorance. And Avery Brundage and Adolf Hitler, Avery Brundage made a deal representing the United States of America, representing the United States Olympic Committee in charge of all the athletes who were trying to get out there and compete in a level In Berlin in 36. In Berlin 36 Olympics. And he denied at Hitler's request... When Hitler said to, Mark, to Avery Brundage, he said, look, it's bad enough that you brought all the black guys over here, but you brought all these Jewish guys, too, and we just can't have that. And so Brundage wouldn't let Marty Glickman run and participate in the Olympics, which he was so, going to be such a star. And so Marty came back from this, this incredible level of just nonsense and ridiculous ignorance. And so... and and. and the irony of the story, we should say the irony of the story was that uh, Jesse Owens ran in Marty's place. That's how he won his fourth gold medal. Right. And, uh, right. so, and so Hitler grudgingly allowed an Af- uh, a, a black man to win because he couldn't abide a Jew winning the, 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 the big event of the uh, 36 Olympics. Right, which was the antithesis of my life growing up. And I got to know Marty Glickman through Ernie Vandeweghe, one of the founding fathers of the NBA as a player. Yes. And Ernie had left the Knicks and moved to Los Angeles, was right across the street from UCLA, had married Miss America, Colleen. They had four wonderful children. and One of one whom was an NBA star himself, Kiki Van. And now is the number three guy running the NBA in the New York office is yeah. Kiki. And we're just all best family friends. And, and, and Ernie was one of these endless lists of people in my life who I just kept coming across and coming across who were only interested in making the world a better place. And so that was the world that I lived in. And then Marty Glickman comes along when I'm 28 years old, and he looks at me and says, you're a stutterer. And I said, I, 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 and I couldn't say a word. He said, come with me. So he took me over in the corner. We stood behind the potted plant. And in five minutes, he just laid it out. Bam, 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 bam. This is how you learn how to talk. Speech and communication, that's a skill. It's not a gift. Here I was my entire life thinking that everybody's feet hurt all the time and only the lucky people could talk. And then Marty, he taught me how to speak the same way that John Wooden taught me how to pivot, how to rebound, how to uh, change a pace, change a direction. And then it all came together, and I learned how to speak, but then Marty died, and now they're scouring the earth trying to find the person to get me to <laughs> to stop. stop speaking out there. But here I am, after all these years, I've made, I've made my living as the, for the last 26 years as a public speaker, as a yeah. live television it's, commentator. It's, a, it, it's an unbelievable achievement, at the beginning, At the beginning, David, I could not get a job. They looked at me and said, are you kidding? Get out of here, Walt. You're going to start spitting and stuttering all over everybody and everything. You're going to start talking about Jerry Garcia and Bob Dylan and Neil Young, and we can't have that. 
But I finally got a job, and I finally got a break. I got a chance. I got my way into the game. And then when I was forced to stop 18 years after I started chasing that dream, and I caught the call all the big games, and I was yeah. there. I was there. I loved listening to you, man. You, you, you were but, great. You are great. And, it was, and, and when I was forced to stop when my spine failed uh, eight and a half years ago, I had just been named one of the top 10 pundits in all of media. I had been named one of the top 20 sports business representatives around the entire globe, and I had been named one of the top 50 sportscasters of all time. So if I can do this, if I can come on this show and talk to you, the greatest orator, the greatest writer, the greatest visionary, the greatest deliverer of the message right now, if I can be I have all that on my business card, by the way. What's to keep anybody else from doing what they want to do? Dreams do come true, and you are the epitome of that. You have captured that in your magnificent (laughs) book, Believer, and oh my gosh, what a story. You, um... you, the look, tears, the tears that stream down my face when I read, and your ability to turn that phrase, I am. I know that jealousy is a bad thing, but I am extremely jealous. Bill, uh, I, but I want to talk. I I talk about me all the time. I want to talk about. I want to talk Perfect. about you. So I, I want to talk a little. Have you ever talked to Joe Biden about uh, your? Because you know he was a stutterer too when he was a kid. I did not know that, and I, and I only know Joe just just tangentially. And I'm a you should huge you should really talk to him about it. He has a touching story about his mom telling him, Joey, you know your 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 thoughts just come so fast they can't get out fast enough. It's just because you're, what, you're so, so that's smart. What, that's what Marty told me. He said, Marty, he said, Bill, Billy, you gotta slow it down. You've got to slow your thought process down. You have to develop the control of your mind ultimately the control of your mouth by chewing gum and developing the strength and and discipline in the muscles so that when your brain sends a command to your jaw, to your tongue, to your chin, to your lips, that something coherent can come out. And I listen to all these broadcasters. I listen to these speakers. I listen to Joe Biden speak. I listen to Obama speak. I listen uh, to Chick Hearn speak, to Marty Glickman speak. And I'm just amazed. And the guys who were, to me, at the top of the list today in the sports world are Mike Tirico and Mike Greenberg. And they're both, um, Mike Tirico is just leaving ESPN, going to NBC, but Mike Greenberg has the morning radio show. And their ability to have their brain and their mouth work at one, at, at the same time. And that's what Chick Hearn had. And when I was, as a little boy, little Billy, you talked about going out with your dad to Coney Island and listening mm-hmm. while you're eating your hot dogs to Marty Glickman. That was me, little Billy, with my transistor radio, listening to Chick Hearn, who would describe this incredible world, this incredible place where dreams could come true and you had a chance to get out there and make it all happen and that's what i wanted to do is that, that was, what is that what, what, is, what was it that i know you you had a coach uh, in high school you you know you wrote in your book uh, lovingly about your not high school but in elementary school at Correct. blessed, my, blessed my first coach Rocky. yes is that what is that who turned you on to basketball he turned me on to sports because we didn't, you know, we didn't have sports in our lives when we were really small because our parents just, that was not their thing, <laughs> you know. And so, but this guy, Rocky, 
Rocky, like me, was a San Diego native who grew up right in the center of the city and went to a public high school. And then when he graduated from high school, he looking around for what to do at his fork in the road. He said, I'm going to become a fireman. And what do firemen do? Firemen, when they see trouble, they head right for it to fix it. They stand up and say, yeah, I'll take care of this. And that was Rocky. And so as a volunteer, he was the fireman down the street from our school. And he had three children of his own. My mom was the librarian down the other street from the school. And so at 3 o'clock every day, there was nothing for all the little children to do. So Rocky stepped to the front and said, I'll take care of this. And so he stepped in as a volunteer, and he organized an athletic program for our entire school, every grade, every level, every sport, every student, all year round. He did that for 59 years as a volunteer. Yeah, the, this country, and, and, this and country, when he died this past, this when he died this is, past yeah. August, he, he, he had never taken a dime, never taken a dime from anybody other than his, his fireman's salary. We should, and, you know, we should stop and say something here, which is that uh, we're all, we all lament the quality of our politics and we all have concerns about the future. And there are people like Rocky all over this country who are doing extraordinary things not because they're getting paid, not because they're going to get mentioned on a podcast or a radio show or a TV show, but because they want to help. And, they're uh, everywhere, David. They're everywhere, and our job is to find them. Yeah. And be, because they're not out promoting themselves. They're not out there pounding their chest saying, hey, look at me, give me something. And I come across people on a constant basis who always are amazed about the opportunity that I had to play for John Wooden. And, 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 and they UCLA. always talk we're, we're about get to that in a second. Yeah, and, go ahead. And they always talk about that. You know, they always talk about, well, this guy, John Wooden, was so unique and he was so great. I said, John Wooden was like countless, countless, countless people who were everywhere in our country and throughout the world. But John Wooden had the great good fortune of being in a position where he, was, where he rose to power. And he was not seeking power. He was not seeking anything other than to make the world better through one individual at a time. John Wooden was an English teacher by profession. That's what he loved most. And then, because he needed money, he became a basketball coach. Because even though baseball was his first love, Coach Wooden was the first great basketball player back in the 20s and the 30s in, the, in, in Indiana. Uh, Martinsville High School and then Purdue University in the Big Ten. And then he got hurt, like everybody else. And he, I've never met a single player who stopped playing. The only guy who's ever stopped playing on his own was Ernie Vandoy. It was Ernie who came up in, a, in, a, in an entrepreneurial family. He said, look, I can't make any money in basketball. I'm going to go become a doctor. I'm going to go become a businessman. I'm going to go become an entrepreneur. So we quit the Knicks, and he came to Los Angeles. And from the day I met Ernie Vandeweghe, everything good in my life, and that was in 1970, 46 years ago, when I first got to UCLA, one of the absolute first persons I ever met there, and everything good in my life, from 1970 on, ultimately can be traced back to Ernie Vandewey. But there's guys like John Wooden and Rocky yeah. and Ernie all over the place, and our job, our job is to go find them. Well, it's also Search you know out. I got to I got to say one thing, and then I, we got to take a short break, which is uh, something Breaks. something, something, something so, uh, yeah, I know that, but you know <laughs> even e e the the demands of uh, of real life intrude even on a podcast. But the okay. uh, but but uh, you know it's interesting that you say that. Uh, John Wooden, who became the greatest college basketball coach of all time, uh, 
became a coach because he loved being an English teacher but couldn't make enough money teaching English. And that there's something there, you know, that we ought to stop and think about for a second because uh, well, we, perhaps we, perhaps we, perhaps so we should many... lift up English teachers too, you know. The coach, Rocky, who... Uh, who really who introduced you to sports? Um, did he you, did he take a special interest in you because you no. showed prowess or or because no you... he took a special interest in every person he ever came across. Well, what was it that drew that, you to him? How much fun it was! How exciting it was! Like reading a book, but you were using your body and running and chasing the dream down. And when Rocky. After he organized our school program, he went around to every other fire station in San Diego and walked in that door and looked at these other young firemen and said, look, this is what I've done in our neighborhood. You need to do this in your neighborhood so we can have leagues, so we can build a community, so we can have championships and competitions. When, when, did, you, when did you realize how good you were at the game? Oh, from the very first day basketball was the piece of cake for me. My problem was that I couldn't stay healthy because my feet kept breaking. Even then, even when, you, even, when you were, uh, even when you were a kid? Absolutely. First time I got in the game, I just showed up. I had no idea. I just followed my older brother, Bruce, who was playing for Rocky. And he, I said, Bruce, when you go home, this, the bus is going to take us home. He said, no, no, man, I'm going to play ball today. So I followed Bruce down to the gym, and I, just, I went and sat on the bench. I just had a pair of tennis shoes on, a pair of cut-off jeans, and maybe a T-shirt. And, and Rocky kept looking down at the bench. And said, who was that little <laughs> red-headed, freckle-faced guy with the big nose who can't talk? And they said, oh, that's Billy. That's Bruce's little brother. So Rocky just looks at me and says, Billy, get in there and see what you got. And so they put me in the game. And the very first time they threw me the ball, I'm at half court. The ball's bigger than my head. I'm eight years old. And I looked down the far end of the court, and my teammates wide open. I had no idea what was going on. He's waving for the ball frantically, and I wound up and I threw the ball as far as I could to him, and the ball swished through the basket from half court <laughs> the very first time I touched it. That was a harbinger. So, uh-huh. so, so from then on, and, but, but Rocky, Rocky who coached every sport, you know, flag football, basketball, baseball, track and field, I cannot tell you today. And Rocky, you know, he was everybody's best friend, and he, he built the community, and but I cannot tell you today that after 59 years of him being the coach, that he knew anything about sports, that he knew anything about basketball, that he knew anything but life. Mm-hmm. He made it fun. It was such a joy, and he knew how to organize. And then you, and be, he but knew you, how to, you started. He knew how to put structure to life, and it was just, and by, it, it by was the, such a joy. We could not wait. We could not wait to get practice every day we you know we, we we wanted school to be over so that we could get out there and be with rocky it was just fantastic. by the time you were a teenager you were you were playing in pickup games with the professional players down there elvin Hayes. absolutely and, oh yes and, no, so, so i i had my we had nothing growing up david but, but we had everything because i had books mm-hmm. my parents loved me more than they cared about themselves and I had a bicycle, right. a skateboard, and a basketball, and so I could get, I could get around town. 
on my bike and on my skateboard and carrying my basketball. And so, and then you can just show up in basketball and then there, and you get in the game and you start playing. And so that's what I did. And so then in the, in the, like 1967, the San Diego Rockets, they get an expansion team from the NBA. And so I, by this time, am in high school, and I've got a key to the high school gym that I had finagled from. I'm not even going to tell you who it was, but <laughs> I would. The statue I would probably run to, on that, but <laughs> I would be able to to open the gym on my own. And so all the San Diego Rockets: Elvin Hayes, Rudy Tomjanovich, Calvin Murphy, Pat Riley, Don Kojus, John Block. All these Lehambone Williams and the coaches, mm-hmm. Pete Newell, Alex Hannum, Tex Winter, Ooh, all these those Jack are, uh, Hall of Fame characters. Right. All, every single one of these guys is absolutely legend, and they could not have been nicer. So they'd come Billy. and play in the gym? Absolutely. No, they'd call me up and they'd say, Billy, we want to play the skull. <laughs> and so I, I'd go, and my parents, you know, my mom, oh, one day my mom answered the phone, and there was this big, deep voice on the other end. Is Billy there? I'm like 14 or 15 years old, right? Is Billy there? My mom says, Who's this? Is Billy there? My mom says, Who is this? I'm Billy's mother, and this deep voice on the other side You just tell Billy that it's the Biggie on the phone. <laughs> I need him to open the gym tonight. My Elvin mom, Hayes, I was huh? at the other end of the house. My mom puts her hand over the phone. She says, Billy, Billy, who's this guy, Biggie? Are you okay? I said, Mom, that's Elvin Hayes. Come on, Mom, give me the phone. I was never so embarrassed in my life. But Elvin Hayes, just the nicest guy. All these guys were just so super nice to me and so encouraging. But, but, they, but they also, they must have seen in you your potential because they let you play, right? Well, in basketball, it, it, it's the ultimate entrepreneurial situation. It's if you can play, you know, you're going to get into that game. Right. And so, I mean, I know, no, I was playing with these guys, and uh, you know, I was, but they they were professionals, and, and and they were. I always played up. You know, I I I just I love to play up. I I love the speed game. I love the John Wooden style of basketball, which was physical fitness, team game, fundamentals, footwork. Full court pressure defense, which leads to your relentless fast break offense. Get it going up and down. And it, it, you know, and to have played in Southern California under the auspices of John Wooden, because every coach I ever had was a John Wooden disciple. Rocky took me to see John Wooden when I was like ten years old. He was already a legend at UCLA, right? Yeah, but he was a legend. He was not a legend until Walt Hazard came. Walt Hazard was the turning point. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's always this tipping point in life when something happens, and then from then on, things are never the same. And while John Wooden had 15 years of coaching at UCLA, and was fantastic at developing young men and the team coming together, you have to have that special player. And that special player was Walt Hazard, who was a combination on the basketball court of... Magic Johnson, and then in the political and social and leadership arena of Martin Luther King. And this guy, he just came to Los Angeles in 1962 or 63, and from that point on, everything changed. Plus, John Wooden had the incredible good fortune that he had the support of the chancellor, Chancellor Charles Young at UCLA, 29 years at a school like UCLA as the chancellor, who loved and really understood the relationship and the value of academics and athletics. And then J.D. Morgan, J.D. Morgan, who spent 40 years of his life at UCLA. 
first as a student athlete, as a tennis star, as the tennis coach ultimately, and then from 1963 on as the athletic director. I, I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose the. I don't want to lose the train of uh, of our conversation here. But but uh, I, I I ought to ask you this. You you talk about the emphasis of academics. And so right. what do you think about the quality of, of college sports today? Do you, do you think that um, there's enough emphasis on um, the balance between academics and, 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 and sports and big-time college sports today? That is the choice of the student-athlete when they go there. And in the vast majority of the numbers of the student-athletes, it is. But what happens is in the big-time money-making sports like football and basketball, the young players, they think it's all about stuff. They think it's about material accumulation and physical gratification. They don't understand this remarkable opportunity that they have to go and be a part of something special, to change their life forever, to train their mind, to learn how to be a part of a great team, to search for, find, and learn from master teachers, to go and expose themselves to these phenomenal professors and great students alongside them, their peers, that they can use to build a network, a life, and a future for themselves because the ultimate champions, they win because they're smarter. Mental acuity and then emotional commitment. Do you care? And that's what you learn when you go to college. And while the players today are bigger and stronger and faster and can jump higher and do all these remarkable athletic things, if they don't take advantage of these incredible, remarkable opportunities to learn from other people, because to be a student, to be a part of something so great, that to, to be a, a, a graduate of UCLA, I went to Stanford Graduate School and the law school up there, and they did that opportunity, all those relationships, that foundation, because to make it to the top of the mountain, you have to have a dream, you have to have a teacher, you have to have a team, you have to immerse yourself in the culture, you have to... Yeah, but don't be, you think, don't you think, but, but don't you feel the... The adults have some responsibilities here because yes. it's not just the We're kids, but but the but the programs exploit these kids as well and take yes. advantage of them. Uh, I mean, it, yes, it seems do. it feels different. I mean, first of all, you can get drafted after your freshman year out of college. Is that is that a good idea? What, uh, no. If I were in charge of the NBA, if I if I had Adam Silver's job, rule number one would be you have to be twenty one to play in the NBA. You want to work in finance, you want to work in marketing, you want to work in sales, you want to work in tickets, you want to work in, in maintenance or event production, you can be whatever age you want. But if you want to play on the court, in the game, and travel around the world on a constant basis and every night living as an adult, you better be 21 years old. Uh-huh. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I... then I would also go back and I would also redirect the youth culture of sports. In, in, in basketball, which I'm most familiar with, mm -hmm. and I would have it focused not, you know, not so much on the travel. Although travel is important. Whenever I go, I love to go hear great speakers. And whenever I hear these guys who have made it to the top of the mountain, and they come and they t and they tell their story to the young dreaming entrepreneurs, every one of them always says that the thing that changed their life the most was when I had nothing and I was just getting started. 
and I went on a trip where I didn't know where I was going. Mm-hmm. And I got to this place, this place, whether it was Australia or Texas or South America or Africa or Europe, I got to these places and it was completely different than anybody had ever said it was. And so I realized at that point that you have to go out and learn it for yourself. You have to get in that game. Don't wait for the game of life to come to you. Let's, let's Take a chance. Take a risk. Understand that risk, uncertainty, and failure are part of everything you're ever going to do in your life. And that's the greatest thing about sports is that it teaches you that on a constant basis. Let's, let's talk about your journey. You, you, I was... Uh, amazed when I was reading your book to see your stats. You grew seven inches uh, or something Six like that. Six and a half inches in three months. And you, and you, end, and you got installed in the lineup uh, in your uh, junior year in high school, and you averaged like some, what, 30 points, 28 rebounds, 12 block shots, some amazing, and you uh, went on to UCLA, um, didn't lose a game for five and a half years, Right. Well, uh, I don't know we, anybody. We had, a, we had a good team. You know, we had a good team. We had great coaches. Yeah, and, I know. But what, and, what what I'm interested in is the decision to go to UCLA. They they had a center before you who was pretty uh, proficient. Named he was my hero, Lou Alcindor. He was uh, my hero. I wore number thirty three in high school because of Kareem. The same with Magic. The same with Larry. We all, everybody wore thirty three in high school because of Kareem. Did who you, was the did greatest you, player I ever played against by far? Did you and he's feel such an outstanding writer? What, yeah. what he's doing today in his life, in terms of shining the light and delivering the message and calling people out like that, is just absolutely fantastic. no. He's 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 uh, he's, he's he's an inspiring guy. But uh, was it at all intimidating to you as a as a high school kid to go there? And knowing that you were being looked to to fill that role that he played on that team. Are you kidding? That, that was the greatest privilege and honor of my life. And one of the great things about Rocky, Rocky, he taught you how to love pressure. He taught you how to, he taught you how to love responsibility. He taught you how to be that guy that wanted to stand up and say, yeah, give me the ball. I'll take care of this. Let me be that guy. Let me lead the charge. Let me go out there in front. I'm ready to go. Yeah. And so that was the life that I had in uh, that culture. I was John Wooden's easiest recruit. That's all I wanted to do was go play for him. I ultimately became his worst nightmare. <laughs> Sadly, drove the poor guy to a hard to imagine grave at 99. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you, you did. Uh, I uh, recall reading that you uh, swiped a, a piece of his stationery. What'd you do with that stationery? Well, I had been arrested at a peace rally, and so he had he he, he was livid. He you know, he he was always mad at me. This is during the Vietnam I was War worst Nightmare, always wanting. I always wanted to know why, why I had to cut my hair, why I had to shave, why I had to wear the clothes he wanted me to wear, why Nixon was president, why we were in <laughs> Vietnam, why the cheerleaders couldn't be in my hotel room on the road trips, and then and and, and, and he. He would just get so exasperated. So when I, I got arrested at this peace rally, then he just he just was livid. And he said, this is just awful. And we had this big confrontation. And I ultimately said to him, hey, look, coach, you can say all you want, but those are my friends. Those are my classmates. Those are my peers who are coming back from Vietnam in body bags and wheelchairs. And we're not going to take this nonsense anymore. And so then he, he turns and he says, Bill, I don't like this war either. But Bill, what you're 
involved in these peace rallies, that's not the way to go about getting what you want because you're infringing on the rights of others. I said, yeah, right. He said, what you should do, Bill? He said, you should go write letters. I said, write letters? Are you kidding? That's the worst idea I've ever heard. Anyway, so when we separated that day, I went down to his office. He went home to his wife, Nell. Now, can you imagine what Nell you would say to Coach Wooden after my days with him? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so I go down to his office, and I ask his secretary, who was still there late in the day, and her name was Aldine. I said, hey, Aldine, hey, do you, do you have any stationery? And she said, yeah, Bill, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, but, you know, Coach Wooden, he wanted me to write a letter. And so I took this stationery, you know, John Wooden stationery, and I took it back to uh, my dorm room, and I, and I and I scripted this letter. Typed it just, you know, I'm a terrible typist, but I scripted this letter to to Nixon, you know, outlining all his crimes against humanity, <laughs> demanding an immediate end to the war in <laughs> Vietnam, bring all the boys home, and 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 then I also insisted that Nixon resign. And, and and then I thanked him in advance for his cooperation. And I asked you know, all the other players on the team signed the letter. I asked Coach Wooden to sign it. He wouldn't sign it. No. And he said, Bill, you're not going to send this in because he was aghast that I had written it on his stationery. <laughs> but, but, but he handed it back to me in perfect condition. He and, could have crumpled it up. He could have thrown it into the trash can. And did you send it? I said it, and then Nixon resigned. It was incredible. I've been writing these letters forever, trying to, you know, trying to make things so, better, trying so to make things going, right. Going because, back, oh my gosh. Going back to basketball for a second, I have to tell you, when I was, and I think I told you once and you cut me off and wouldn't let me finish because you're too <laughs> humble to let me finish, but uh, I, was, I hitchhiked down in my freshman year from the, at the University of Chicago. I hitchhiked to St. Louis for the... NCAA finals. You remember that? Uh, we won that game. Yes, won you that won game. that game. You you took twenty two shots in that game, and how many did you hit? I took twenty six shots. In no, that no, game. you took twenty two shots, and you hit twenty one. Well, four baskets 20, away from me. Twenty, twenty two of twenty twenty one of twenty two. Uh, I think you had thirteen rebounds. It was the greatest single. I I lived here with Michael Jordan for 13 years. Uh, I never saw a greater performance at a in a bigger event than the what you did that night. And and I'm not saying that to draw protest from you or to make you uh, cringe thinking uh, t talking about yourself. But here's what interests me. You said it before. You 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 embrace the pressure. You know we have a coach here, the uh, a manager of the Cubs here, who says never let the pressure overwhelm the pleasure, and you are the epitome of that. But it's what separates the greatest players of all time, of which you are one, from a lot of other great athletes, and the ability in the the biggest moments to embrace the pressure and perform at the highest level. What is it about the greatest athletes? that make them able to do that. We, we're celebrating Muhammad Ali. He was another because one of those athletes. What, What's that what quality? Happens, what happens is that some person, some moment happens early in your life where the light comes on and you see that this is what I love. And for me, that was Rocky. That was Chick Kern. Yeah, but didn't you get nervous? My dad in his life. My dad was a stand-up guy. My dad... My dad grew up in California Central Valley, the son of educators, 
And uh, he went to Berkeley and was an honor student there, finished second in his class, then got drafted in the World War II, went over and fought in Europe. And then he came home, never said a word about the war, came home and spent the rest of his life trying to convince people to get along. Always on principle, always on foundation, always on moral ground. And here was this guy, and then Rocky, and then Chick Hearn, and then right, John right. Wood, but and Bill. Then Bob Dylan. And so those people, they showed me the light. They showed me that basketball could be my vehicle. And I had heroes, and I chose my heroes. Right. But what is it? What, what, what went on in your head? What went on in your head? Did you, a lot of people, most people, most people, including professional athletes, when they get into a game in which the whole world is watching, uh, and there are huge consequences to everything they do, play tight. And then there are a few people. Michael Jordan used to say, "The game slows down for me when everything's right. on the line." What 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 was go, what goes through your mind in a championship game? You won an NBA title as well. I was a Bulls fan when you destroyed us in '77, uh, but we'll, let, we'll set that aside. Uh, what is it about your psyche? For I know you were raised in this tradition, but right. something goes on in your head that allows you not to be nervous and allows you to play at your peak when the pressure is the highest that I get the chance that when it gets really hard and it's really tough, I always tell myself, do you know how many countless numbers of people would do anything, anything to be in this spot right now? And that chance to have the outcome be determined by what you do. And that's the way I try to live my life. And that opportunity to have that ball in your hands and say, yeah, what I do is going to determine what happens here. And as we stand in that fork in the road, that constant decision as to which way we're going, this is what I want it to be like. This is how I want it to, to play out. And I can do something about that. And I was always just... My dream, David, was to be a part of a special team. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm not, you, you, uh, I don't like it when people talk about individual statistics. I'm not a statistic guy. I'm a people guy, yeah. and I'm a guy who played to win. And my heroes growing up, Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali on the sporting fields. Mm -hmm. And what they did, that, that, that ability to inspire little Billy, to just come out and say, wow, if they can do that, I can do that. And then um, all the books that my mom would bring home from the library. I'm a, uh, I'm a nonfiction reader. I like history, biography, adventure, accomplishment, discovery, mm -hmm. and risk and failure and, and uncertainty and all the different things that go into making life and they go into creating history. That's so I, I, we got we can, we got to take another short break. But, I, but, but another short break. But before Damn. we do, but before we do, um, so. You, you, when you are in a situation like that, when you're when you're in those big yeah. games, your yeah. thought is you're 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 not seized by fear of failure. You're no. seized by a sense that uh, uh, that you can overcome. That you're gonna. But make, I've got make, a chance. Mm -hmm. I've got a chance. And and the great thing about basketball is that you do not have to wait for somebody to give you the ball. You can go get that ball and. 
It, it drives me crazy as the broadcaster when I hear these guys whining and complaining, the coach doesn't call my play. The other guys don't give me the ball. Are you kidding? Go get the ball. <laughs> get a rebound. Play some defense. Block a shot. Make a steal. Let's go. We got a game. We got a championship on the line. Who can play? Who's in shape? Who really wants this? And who's got a game? Uh, I love it. Bill, I, I want to talk to you uh, about uh, the one of the main uh, cores of your story in a second. I just want to finish up the last discussion because you, you talked about the beauty of the team, of the unit, right. of working right. together. Your son is an assistant coach on the uh, Golden State Warriors right now. He's right. going to be the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers next year. Wow. Yeah, wow. that's something. Congratulations on that. Wow. Nothing like the pride of a dad. I, you're a great dad, David. You're a great <laughs> well, thank dad, you. I tell you. But, uh, your your but, story is so remarkable. You, you make me cry. <laughs> you make me stand tall. Thank you, sir. So on the Warriors, uh, speaking of the Warriors, when you watch them um, – do you see that? Do you see the unit? Do you see? Yes, I see the team, mm-hmm. and I see I, I see I see everything. I see leadership at the top: Joe Lake and Peter Guber. I see Jerry West. I see Bob Myers. I see Rick Welts. All these fantastic guys, the low key yeah. guys, not looking for the light. And then I see the coach Steve Kerr, who has the great the great privilege, Steve Kerr. Growing up a UCLA fan, was a UCLA ball boy, goes to Arizona, plays for the 21st century version of John Wooden, Lute Olson, then goes and plays for the Bulls with Phil Jackson and Michael and Scotty and all those guys. And then he goes down and uh, plays in San Antonio with Timmy and, 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 and David and, and, and all Popovich and all these great guys. And, and, and then he gets this chance, and all of a sudden... All, this is the greatest testament to leadership in the world and the value of coaching. Because I'm, I'm the biggest believer in that guy who sits in the decision-making chair and how valuable that guy is. Because Golden State, they had, they already had the team, but mm-hmm. they had the wrong coach. And so the owner saw this. The owner fired the coach, Mark Jackson, and they bring in a new coach, Steve Kerr, and with the same team, they win the championship and go on to the most incredible run, two-year run in the history of, uh, of, of the it's NBA. A, it's beautiful to watch them move that ball. It's, uh... it, it, and, and, and the skill level and yeah. the passion and the fitness and the selflessness, and there's no crazy people with egos out of control and whining and complaining and making excuses and saying, where's mine? Yeah. It's all about let's go get this done, and at the end of the day, they got this guy Steph Curry, and who's just so fun. Have to you ever watch. seen and a better shooter? Well, I don't get into the ranking and the rating and the comparing. I just enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I work for ESPN. I work for ESPN, and ESPN has changed the world because now everything has oh, this is the greatest or this is the worst. And yeah. every time a team wins a ch- every time a team in any sport wins a championship, guaranteed the next the five minutes after the championship has been won. ESPN.com has got a biggest, big banner headline. This is the greatest team ever. And, and that's just not the way life yeah. works. I mean, Enjoy the moment. This, Live in the moment. Enjoy today. Yeah, exactly. Learn from yesterday. Dream about tomorrow. But live for today, and and, and and that's what Steph Curry, that's what Clay Thompson, that's what Iguodala, and that's what Harrison Barnes and Bogut and Don't Sean and Barbosa, and they just and Draymond Green, they just keep coming at you, yeah. and they they come to work, 
They come to play. They come to celebrate. And they don't care who gets the basket. They care that they win. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and that's the egalitarian nature of basketball. And that in, in, in the, the peer pressure and you're coming. And I was so lucky, David, to be part of UCLA, to be part of the Portland Trailblazers, to be part of the Boston Celtics. These great teams that would just mow down the and I will And I will say this. You're... Um you'll be remembered at least by real basketball fans as much for uh, the rebound tip that starts the fast break, the pass from the high post uh, as any basket that you uh, scored yourself. But that was my favorite part of the game was, was starting the fast break. Yeah. And, you know, and before I hurt my knee when I was 14, I was out in front of the fast break. But then I hurt my knee. I grew six and a half inches in three months, couldn't run or jump anymore. And so I had to completely change my game. And that's the way life goes. Mm-hmm. You can whine and complain about it, or you can make an adjustment, make an accommodation. So I did. And so I just said, I'm going to start the fast break yeah. now instead of finish it. You were and, as and, good and as that the- as anybody uh, since Bill Russell, and you guys were the two best ever. But we only have a little time left. I want to ask you about the, 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 the struggles that you've had, because this book begins searingly, uh, Back from the Dead, begins searingly, uh, with you talking about lying on the floor, you after you know you've had 37 orthopedic surgeries, lying on the floor, unable to get up, uh, and you said, and it's stunning. If you had had a gun, you would have you would have killed yourself. Uh, right, because my life was over. There was no reason to believe that I was ever going to get any better because I couldn't get better. I was doing everything I possibly could, and. You, we should One explain. That, you, you played 14 years in the NBA. I think you said in this book, it, correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually played a total of three and a half years of... of about of two game. and a half seasons I played. I, I only finished, I, 14 years in the NBA, David, I only finished the season twice. Every other, the other 12 years, I finished the season in the Because hospital. of pain that, that you felt, but they couldn't really diagnose for years and years and years. Because of the structural congenital defects in my feet that led to the endless string of stress fractures. My injuries were not the type where I fell down. My knee injury was, my spine, my broken spine was, but my feet injuries, my foot injuries, those were the result of just playing and running because I did not have the normal flexion and shock absorption capacity in my feet because of these bars that had grown between, at birth, between the calcaneus and the navicular bone, the centerpiece of the arch. And so when you watch all these other guys run and play and move, as their feet hit the ground, accommodate and flex, all the stress, all the impact, all the pressure, it gets dissipated up through the muscular skeletal system, through the tendons, mm-hmm. the ligaments, Not the joints and everything. I didn't have any of that. How frustrating Every- was it? How frustrating was it to you? De- devastating. Devastating. I mean, that, that was my problem in life in that <clears throat> I wanted to be a basketball player. I wanted to run and jump and play all day long. And the more I did it, the worse my feet got. My feet hurt all the time. And then ultimately... I pushed it, I drove it so much that the bones in my feet would just crack, not from falling down, not from somebody jumping on me, no, but just from running and jumping, and then the bones would crack, and then the more I tried to run, the bigger they would crack. And so, 
This one day, April 18, 1978, I'm the MVP of the NBA. We're the youngest team to ever win the championship. We got this incredibly great team in Portland. We got Jack Ramsey. We got the Blazer. Jack Ramsey, one of the great coaches of all time. Yeah, and so it was like perfect. It was my life, but I couldn't play because yeah. my foot was broken, and they didn't know it. And so they kept telling me, there's nothing wrong with you. I said, my foot is killing me. And so on this day, April 18th, the doctor pulls out this big, long needle with a big syringe full of xylocaine on the back end of it and plunges it in the base of my foot and ankle. And I go out there and I try to play this game in the NBA playoffs to try to help the team win. And that small, undiagnosed stress fracture in my foot, the bone split in half. Mm -hmm. And I spent the rest of time trying to chase down that special thing of being part of something great the thing that you have in your life and you did it you you and you actually came back with the celtics in the 80s and and you won the six man (coughs) award and you you persevered but but then you you ended up later in life in this position where your spine gave way right right. my spine failed and collapsed i spent years on the ground and I, I lost everything got fired it was the worst of corporate america got fired from my job lost everything lost my health insurance you know you've been down that road yes. before with the health insurance nightmare and oh my god mm-hmm. and so uh, how, how and 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 how did you uh, talk about how you overcame uh i this, ultimately this got dark better moment. because of uh, because of surgery my spine surgeon dr steve garfin uc san diego has given his life to save other people, and then the medical device company that's come up with all the equipment and the techniques and the procedures and all the different things that go into life-saving healthcare. And that's Nuvasive is that company. is a San Diego-based company. I had no idea about any of this. I knew nothing about spine health other than my spine hurt all the time from the time I was mm-hmm. 21 when I broke my back, and then I had this bad foundation. When you have a bad foundation in life, you have a bad foundation in anything, ultimately everything up the line goes bad, and that was yeah. my spine. And so yeah. it was February February of 2008, and, man, uh, uh, just here you you were coming to save the world. <laughs> I was trying to be there on that train, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get off the floor. I missed – I spent half my adult life in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I spent – I spent – so much time in my life just lying there waiting. And then at the end, I, I, I just gave up because it was just too hard. And it was just too much pain. And there was no hope. And there was no path forward. And then this, this doctor, Steve Garfin, he steps up and says, I've got an idea. I've got a plan. And I'm willing to take the chance. And I had to take the chance. I, I had no choice. My, my only other choice was suicide. And when you're in that space, when you're in that space, and, and more people commit suicide from, from back pain than from any other malady. And it's just overwhelming. It destroys every aspect of your life. It destroys every aspect of all the people around you. And here's this situation where I had nothing. But then I had this surgery, and I'm all better. And I take no medication. I have no pain. I go full speed ahead. Now, I've never been busier. I've never been happier. And and I haven't been this healthy since I was 13 years old. I never thought all these years 
I never thought that I'd be free of pain. I never thought that I'd be happy in love. And I have both of those today. I am the luckiest guy on earth. Well, the book is something that is, you don't have to be a sports fan to love this book. And I encourage everyone to read it. I can't let you go without uh, at least mentioning the Grateful Dead. I have a t-shirt, a Bill Walton Grateful Dead t-shirt that says, that has a quote on the back, back that says, please not while the band is playing. Correct. Uh, yeah. That, that's so, one of my favorite t-shirts. <laughs> so the, so the dead, uh, the dead was like a big part of your life is a big Huge part. Huge part. They're my best friends. And <clears throat> I'm a deadhead. I've been a deadhead since I was 15 years old, 1967. It was the summer of love here in California, and I went to my first show, and things were never the same again, and I never left, and I've just had the time of my life, and I've been to now more than 870 Grateful Dead concerts. I'm, I'll be out on tour all this summer. I'll be in Boulder. I'll be in Alpine Valley. I'll be in Portland, Oregon, the Gorge. I'll be in San Diego, my hometown where I still live, Irvine. I'll be in Sacramento. I'll be in Shoreline, and just we're so lucky that they keep playing because I, it's so much fun. I would ask and you. I would ask you for the, your the 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 greatest dead song ever. But then you hit me with the ESPN top thing. Right. It's all again. one song. It's all <laughs> one song, David. And, and they just change the verses. They change the rhythm. <laughs> they change the the beat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. They take a little bit of a break so that they can catch their breath and then and, 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 and change the mood, but. There, you know, these are guys who just who came like you, who came like me from nothing, and they had a dream. Yeah, and they said, and they said, we can do this. And then they and they had a team. They created their own culture. They developed their foundation, and then they just and they always came back to the critical elements for group success, and that's what has failed in our country now. Mm-hmm. Because, because, uh, because failure always comes back to three things, lack of honor, selfishness, and greed. Success always comes back to two elements, sacrifice and discipline. And I want to be a part of the winning team. I want to be a part of something that's moving forward. I want to be a part of the future. I want to be a part of happiness. I want to be a part of joy. And I'm willing to stand up and do something about it. And that's why when I get off this phone, I'm going to go and vote today. <laughs> well, let me say this. I'm happy that you were part of this podcast, brother. You, you're, I, you're, an ins- you're an, ins- you you're an, inspire- you're you're an inspiring hero. fellow. Well, we, can, we, have a, we have a mutual admiration society. Bill Walton, thanks you're so John much. You're John Wooden. <laughs> you're Chick Hearn. You're Rocky. <laughs> Thanks, you're Maurice Lucas. You're David uh, Alberstam. Uh, uh, right, oh my brother. gosh. Thank you're you. Larry Bird. Thanks, Thanks for having me, David. Uh, right. Have a wonderful Great day. To be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.